Today for Highway 89, it's my privilege to be able to introduce Samuel Adler. He's a professor emeritus of the Eastman School of Music. He retired in 2014 from the Juilliard School of Music, although he is still helping out there until May of this year. Samuel Adler, Sam, thank you for coming in today. Great pleasure to be with you. You have a long and storied career, 65 years of teaching music. Correct. So you know a lot about music in the U.S., and I wonder if we can just start off in general. Compared with when you began teaching, and as you look at music education in universities and public schools now, what changes do you see in that time? Well, in the first place, we have to say that I get around the world a great deal. And we in America have the finest higher education music system in our schools that exists in the world. And that's why so many people from all over the world, especially now from Asia, are coming here to study. Our standards are the highest in the world. And I must say, from a compositional point of view, we have such great talent in our universities and colleges. I've never seen anything like it. But people don't realize that because we push our popular music so much throughout the world that people think that's the only thing we have, when the actuality is that uh, we have in this country the highest standards of musical composition among our young people. I'm sorry to say that is sort of kept as a wonderful secret and nobody <laughs> knows about it and people care less about it. And that's too bad because what they would find is a treasure trove of wonderful music being written by young composers today. Are there places where communities are beginning to hear some of the current composition. Yes, of course. Colleges are the places to hear it. For instance, here at BYU, you have a new music group. You have it at the university. You have it all over the place. I just (laughs) had a few uh, stops on the way here. I was at Indiana University, where they have a huge new music program. The Jacobs School of Music. The Jacobs School. And I was down at the University of Texas in Austin. They have a big new music program. The problem is that it has been so anesthetized from the mainstream. For instance, I would rather have a piece of mine played between Beethoven and Mozart or Beethoven and Brahms or Mozart and Rossini than between Joe Blow and Mary Doe, you know, because in the 60s, we started to put music by contemporary composers, by living composers, let's put it that way, in a different category from dead composers. Now, dead composers are okay. Living composers are suspect (laughs) because of the difference between music of the 20th century, which does not have one style prevailing. You see, this is a big difference. When you hear a piece by Mozart and you suddenly find out it's Haydn, well, you weren't far from wrong. They have one style. It's great. It's wonderful music. And so it could be by either one or by Paisello or by anybody else living in those, Salieri, anybody else living in those times. You can't do that with the 20th century because there were so many styles coexisting. Is that because there were so many conventions at the time of how it was to be done? Correct. Have we let go of those conventions? Yes. Well, it broke down with the breaking down of authority 
generally. I mean, you have that in literature, you have it in art, you have it in every form of artistic endeavor these days because, you see, we don't have a prevailing one-fits-all anymore, which actually is very good because that happened in the late 19th century. Look at the difference between Debussy and Hindemith or Debussy and Strauss, who lived exactly at the same time, and there, you know, there was the Rhine in between them, and there is no explaining this. Also, you have in the late 19th century a preponderance of nationalism and the uh, rise of the nationalistic composer. And we had that in America. As soon as our young men and women came back from France after the First World War, they wanted to write American music. And in my youth, Uh, since I studied with Aaron Copeland, for instance, or Walter Piston, we wanted to write American music. It was supposed to sound like Aaron Copeland and Piston and people who used the vocabulary of American folk music as a basis. Some of them had gone to study in Europe because that was what you did back then. Of course. But what were they defining American music as? They were exploring to try and find that. Well, that's what, look, let's take a man like Dvorak. The difference between Dvorak and Brahms is that Dvorak was wedded to his bohemian heritage and wanted to incorporate that in every piece that he wrote. Brahms was wedded to his German ancestry, but he wrote a lot of arrangements of German popular songs, not popular, but folk songs. I think there are 200 in a volume of Brahms songs that are folk song arrangements, but he did not use those except in one piece, the Academic Festival Overture. He did not use that in his symphonic work. And that's the difference between Dvorak and Brahms. And you take somebody like uh, Copeland, who used vernacular American work, especially in his great ballets. Yes. And also in the in the Third Symphony, which is, I think, one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century. Where are the outlets for composers today? I'm aware of people being specific enough to say that they're going into writing music for video games, and some are going into music for film scoring. Where are the opportunities well, there are to be that heard? You just mentioned two outlets. The most important thing is that they learn the craft of composition. After that, they can do whatever they want. The big outlet, of course, for composers is to teach at a university or a college and get the music played there. And also, orchestras and chamber groups are very interested these days in playing new music. I mean, happily, that is going on all over the world. I mean, you go to Europe or you go to Asia. I mean, I've I've been in China four times and in Korea. And, and of course, I had a course in Berlin every year for the last 11 years. And there's new music played all over the place. The audiences may be small, but many of the mainstream organizations are now featuring one piece of new music with other pieces of the canon, which is the way it should be done. And just this year with the Utah Symphony, 75th anniversary, mm-hmm. 
And they had they commissioned pieces. They've commissioned. I think I've heard three different pieces this exactly. year that were commissions. Well, you see that that is an outlet for for composers, and we have so many that people say, "Well, uh, there are so few." Com-. That's not true. There are hundreds and hundreds of composers. I started my career in Texas, and when I went to Dallas after serving in the in the U.S. Army. I was one of two composers in Dallas, Texas. Now I'm sure there are over 100 there. There is this explosion of creativity all over the world, and that, I think, is the most wonderful thing. As we were sitting down, setting up the microphones and chatting, you mentioned people having a fear of new music. Mm -hmm. Will you tell me about that? Yes. You see, our audiences are not educated like the audiences were in the 18th and 19th century. First of all, these people that went to concerts were the upper crust, and they were also amateur musicians. Most of the people that went to concerts, let's say by Beethoven, these people were all amateur musicians. So when he did something that they didn't understand, They loved it because it was something new. So what happened is that they wanted something new. You see, today's audiences that are not musicians themselves, but are music lovers, which I think is wonderful, but they expect to hear what they already know. And the fear is to be bored or to be somehow... Uh, aggressively, how should we say it? Uh, I, don't, I don't want to use a pejorative term, mm-hmm. but uh, it is against their sensitivity uh, to hear something that shakes them up. And you see, I think people go to a concert to sort of be lulled into a nice euphoric state, which is the wrong way to go to a concert. You want to be moved to do something, you know. Mm. And and that is what I would expect from an audience that would hear music of mine. I don't... (laughs) There's a wonderful story I can tell, and that is uh, Aaron Copeland was the moderator for the Sunday concerts when I was a student in Tanglewood. And uh, there was always a question period at the end. Of course, they didn't want to ask us questions. They want to ask him questions. So a lady got up and said, <laughs> you know, Mr. Copeland, I love music. And I, I live in New York. And I come home at 5 o'clock. And I lie down. And I want to snooze a little. But I want to snooze. I put on a WQXR. And they play Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, Debussy, and I can snooze. But when they play your music, I get very jangled and very nervous, and I can't snooze. He said, Madam, I'm very happy about that because I wasn't snoozing when I I wrote this piece. (laughs) So, you know, it's that way. Today, we want to talk about our situation, the way we live. Well, we live in a very, very powerful world. We live in a world that has terrific things happening scientifically, medically, technologically. And on the other hand, we have the bomb, you know, that could destroy the whole world. We have pollution that could destroy us. And that's what we're dealing with. And we cannot write music like Schubert, who was living at a different age, wrote the most wonderful music, But it's different because he was talking about his age as we have to talk about ours. 
You work with students so much of varying ages and even the very youngest. Talk about how we could educate our younger children so they can be open to all different kinds of music. You'd be surprised. The younger children have no prejudice. When they hear a piece by Stravinsky or by Schoenberg, they don't say, oh, I don't like 12-tone music. They don't know. They just love it because it's music. Mm -hmm. And if it's done right, if it's not put upon them like, uh, oh, you got to listen to this, you listen to it, it's new for them. They don't care if it's Bach or Ligeti, you see. For them, it's an experience. And I have never found children who dislike contemporary music. They take it like all other music. Unfortunately, we don't expose them enough to it, you see. And that's why this program that they have started here, the Sistema Type program, is so important because it shows these kids that music is all the same. It isn't just one period of music. You've got to love uh, Schubert or Beethoven or Brahms or something like that. Of course you should love them, but it's much easier because that's the kind of music that they're used to more. And they're very excited about hearing something new, especially when, and I, I always recommend that, let them write their own music, you see. And that's my song, you know, that's a very important part of it. Samuel Adler is Professor Emeritus of the Eastman School of Music, retired in 2014 from Juilliard, though still teaching there until May. He's in Utah right now working with students at the University of Utah, also here today on the BYU campus, and will be at Utah Valley University. You really do have a passion for teaching and reaching students, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes, I do, because I think that's my mission in life. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Sam. Great pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank you. Professor Samuel Adler is here by the good graces of the Salty Cricket Composers Collective. They are sponsoring this visit, and they do a lot with new composers and also raising a new generation by exposing children to music and doing their own composition. Grace Notes is the program. It's an El Sistema-inspired program. Thanks to Nathaniel Escher for bringing Samuel Adler here today. And there is a concert coming up at 270 South Main, Art 270 is the gallery in Salt Lake City.